we're going to look at Matthew chapter 17 today, and we're going to, we're going to walk through a, a larger swath of the, of, the, of the text. We're going to go from um, verse 1 all the way to, well, mostly through all the way through verse, verse 20. And this is going to be broken down into three sections. I want you to think with me, three sections. The first section is Jesus on the mountain. Uh, the second uh, section is Jesus confronts a mountain. And then finally, Jesus tells his disciples to move mountains. Well, all right, we're good so far. Everybody, we can go home. So there's where we are so far. So that's, how, that's the, the rhythm we're going to go. But we need to see the, this, this, this passage together for us to really benefit from what I believe Matthew is trying to show us. All right, so let me just read beginning at uh, 17, beginning at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. You know, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but it's, it's, it's shocking, I mean, in hindsight, that we read this, North American evangelicals, and we, we hear this phrase, his, became, his face became like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light, and we read it with about that much inflection, yeah. without any shock. The original, original audience, not let alone the participants, yeah. pass out. Just then... And just and then it gets worse. Just then there appeared before, just when you're getting used to Jesus glowing, <laughs> just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Thank you. At least at least pretend to be amazed by this. Oh uh, yeah, and oh, like this has happened to you. <laughs> Peter, this is, a, this is how, it's supposed to, well, how we're supposed to react. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, this is how it sounded when he said it. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. Turn the mic down. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. I know it's so good, but we have more to read. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. And music played. <laughs> But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So good. So good. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Once again, I just want to say parenthetically, when we hear, when you read the words in red of Jesus saying, now listen, don't tell anybody, that no longer applies to you. Stop obeying the scripture there. 
<laughs> you, you all should be telling people about what you've seen. All right, that's not the point at all. That's not the point at all. Here we go. So he says, don't tell anybody. Now jump to verse 14. There's a brief interlude where they say, we thought Elijah was coming. And he said, it's John. oh, it's John the Baptist. Okay, next. Here we go. Verse 14. When they came, when they came to the crowd, Matthew doesn't even really introduce the crowd. He just tells us there is one. When he came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jeremy Young, I almost sent you that picture so that you could post it. That one that came over a box a little while ago from Emily Rose. Uh, here's the next verse, verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. What I've said in all, all, all both of the services prior is that's, that statement doesn't make a lot of T-shirts. Whereupon my daughter made one and sent it to us. So I don't know if we're going to... She wants to be on the design team, she said. Uh, she has a little Jesus and a little heart thing next to it, like he's saying it with love. <laughs> you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Thank you. How many of you heard a little Clint Eastwood right there? All right? Bring the boy here to me. <laughs> right? Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Bah, bah, bah. It reminds me when I was a kid, really little, 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 little kid. I don't think you remember this, Dad. But I remember everything. So we were at the, bah, 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 several, we were at the rental house. And I had, uh, you guys had got me up. Uh, cap gun, you know six-shooter type thing, and uh, I was uh, doing quick draw with Fred Trepto next door, and I beat him every time. That guy couldn't beat me. I was so fast. I was before kindergarten, but I was fast. So then I thought, I'm going to challenge my dad. I said, hey, I remember telling him, all right, I, I told him how fast I was at the draw. And I, he had a gun and I had a gun. And I said, we we're going to see who could be faster. Well, little did I know, my dad, that what he did in the Army when they stuck him in Arizona was shoot things. <laughs> That's what he is. So when we say Jim Davenport is a straight shooter, we literally mean he's a straight shooter. <laughs> and so I was like, ready? And I, I remember reaching for my gun, and all of a sudden I was dead. That gun came out of my dad's holster so fast, I thought, well, how did you do that? <laughs> I'm like, Whoo! But that's what I see with Jesus. <laughs> bring the boy here to me. And as soon as they bring him up, he, Jesus rebukes the demon, and he was healed at that moment. Ba, ba, ba. What just happened? Jesus happened. Yeah. 
wait, wait, what just happened? I thought that boy was suffering and horrible and everything was going wrong and brokenhearted and dad's upset and the family's falling apart and now I've got healed and restored. What happened? Jesus, Jesus happened. happened. And that's what Matthew keeps wanting to tell us. I'm not done yet. <laughs> then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith. Now, I realize many of us get to this point in any of the Gospels, and we start going, we, this is, it feels discouraging, it feels frustrating. We want to keep reading fast to come unto me, all you who are weary. <laughs> but if we'll lean into this passage a little bit today, I, I, there is, the Gospel is good news, yeah. not bad news. So stay with me. Because you have so little faith, I tell you, he changes the subject right away. See, Jesus always speaks to our expectations. Jesus leads with hope. Yeah. Always. He always speaks to our expectations. He calls us out and, and to meet him at the place of, of exceedingly great expectations. Always. You don't, I, I got to push this rock, I guess. Jesus says give, right? And instead of saying give and it'll be all right, what does he say? Give and it'll be given back to you. Press down shaken together and running over. He just doesn't know. When Jesus wants to move our obedience, when he wants to inform or inspire our faith, he always speaks to our expectations. He always calls us out to meet him where he is. So he says, because you have so little faith, and so he ch and, but quickly changes the subject without letting them wallow in shame, pulls it out. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, I, I, don't, I probably won't get to it later because I don't want to distract myself. But while we do believe that, that, that there is an, an, an element to our Christian faith that has to do with speaking, and, and we do speak by faith, we make declarations, all of that's true. No, everybody said amen. Yeah. But this is, the point here is not about what you're saying. The point is, there's a mountain. The, the absolute least effective thing you could ever do to move a mountain would be to talk to it. There, it, it and for me just to speak, there, what about, well, shouldn't I strain? Shouldn't I strive? Shouldn't I be sweating? Shouldn't I be gritting my teeth and groaning and working hard? And Jesus said, that's not what faith is. Faith is me literally doing nothing. I'm standing in front of the mountain doing the thing that makes the least sense but I'm doing it by faith. He said, when you have, if you have faith, nothing will be impossible for you. Let's all catch up with Kate. Let's try it. <laughs> nothing will be impossible for you. Let's say it together. Nothing will be impossible for you. Wow. Okay, let's, let's try to just see. Remember now, we need to, we need to look, we need to understand or appreciate both parts of this story, if, we're, if it's going to grip, if, it's, if we're going to be affected by it. The first part of the story is significant all by itself, the Mount of Transfiguration. It's significant all by itself. It was exceedingly significant to the original audience. I mean, to the people on the mountain. And it would have been, it would have been very, very significant to the original readers. When we say original readers in the book of Matthew, who are we talking about? We're talking about early Jewish Christians, people with an exceedingly rich Jewish 
background in the Old Testament and their understanding. They would have had a great deal of it memorized. It, was a, it, was, it, was, it landscaped their entire psyche. They didn't have DVRs to record stuff. Their lives were full of the Bible. That wasn't a poke. I'm just saying that's how they live. This, they, so for them, <clears throat> all of these, everything that they're reading is, is poking and stirring up biblical imagery on purpose. This is Matthew's agenda. Now, it also is significant to every reader of every era, to you and I today. So, but here's what happens. Here's how it begins. <laughs> Verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So Peter and James and John, right? Now, when, when, when the gospel writers reference Peter, James, and John, it seems like, and although they're not called like the varsity squad, but it seems like there's these three that are with him Maybe more often. They're, they're, they're a little bit more in the proximity and activity of Jesus. He has these three. Yeah. And if there's going to be something really cool happen or really amazing or really tough, there's these three, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I have got to tell you, I want to be clear on the record here. If I were a part of that group, this verse would have read, Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and he took Peter, James, John, and Dab insisted to come. I would have been like, hey, guys, wait for me. And Peter would have been like, oh, no, not him again. We're going to have to wait for him to catch up on the mountain. <laughs> I'll be right with you. A little bit of conditioning that I need here, okay? But I'm tell I don't know why. I don't, I don't have an explanation as to why there were these as three went with him. But I tell you what, I, there would have been four. How many of you, that would have been you too, right? Well, so Jesus goes up, but the point is he led them up a high mountain. Everybody say high mountain. I got to hurry a little bit because we're... Oh, oh, somebody else took all my time. So I'm going to blame somebody. Mrs. Dad, pray too much. Just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> high, a high mountain. You might say, which mountain was it? Was it Mount Hermon next, next to Caesarea Philippi where he just... Where the, we had that last week or two weeks ago. Jesus, you are the Christ. Caesarea Philippi. Right next to that is Mount Hermon, one of the highest peaks in the region. From it, you can see all the way to the Sea of Galilee. It's a massive mountain. Perhaps it was that mountain. Others say, oh, no, it was in six days. They walked all the way to Mount Tabor. And there's a church there called the, the Church of the Transfiguration. It doesn't matter, really, what mountain it was. The point is more the symbolism than the actual mountain. There was an actual mountain, but, it's, but Matthew wants to see something, that Jesus went up a high mountain and took with him only his closest apprentices. And the readers of that, these Jewish this audience goes, hey, 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 that's like Moses. And they go, oh, Moses went also up a high mountain by himself, and he took only Joshua. And he went up there a long time and left everybody else down at the bottom of the mountain. Ooh, so we see that, that Matthew, might, he might just be leaning into some symbolism. He might want to be teaching us something. And he's drawing, he's comparing uh, this, this event to the Old Testament event. Well, then it continues. Verse 2, don't waste any time. Then he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. And we say, oh, wait, 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 that's like Moses. Moses went up the thing, and the thing, and he came, and his face. We read it, and then they had to wear the veil. But in Christ, the veil is removed. So, so we don't wear them. But anyway, uh, she said, Moses, Moses' face reflected the glory of God. So we might say, oh, this is like that. But it's not like that at all. Because Jesus isn't reflecting light. 
Jesus is the light. And, when, and that's why you read this and you go, what, what? You just, you pass out because he's like, oh my word, he's not reflecting the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And Matthew is the only one who wants us to make sure to see that it's Jesus' face is shining, not reflecting, but shining. Oh, so he's shining, he's reflecting, he is, he is giving off the uncreated light of God. Oh, it's amazing. All by itself, that's amazing. And then it doesn't stop. Just when they can't catch their breath, all of a sudden, whew, Moses and Elijah show up. And the first thing we want to say is, hey, wait a minute, I thought those guys were dead. <laughs> For a while. And then we remember Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And we see once again that there is a life after this life. That this life is only a shadow and a precursor of the one to come. Eternity is real. <laughs> is trying to get your attention. Jesus is coming and we should live like it. Oh, but there's even more. He says, <laughs> it says Moses Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking with Jesus as if Jesus already knew them. This is the guy that said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, wait a minute, how can he talk to you? How can he talk to him like he knows him? He's only like 30-something years old. You don't know who you're talking about. Oh, he knows him. He talked to a, he talked he talked he talked to Moses on a mountain before. Yeah. 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 Ooh. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. They've had a conversation on a mountain before. This one's a little more mild, but they've talked before. And he's talked to Elijah before. He shook the he shook the earth and a wind and fire and and then he said, "Now, what are you doing here, boy? Get back to work." They've talked before. <laughs> Jesus. But that's not even it so far. It's so awesome. We're... Peter sees Jesus talking with these two guys. And he gets so excited. He thinks this is it. This is, this is the trifecta. We have Moses and Elijah and now Jesus. This is it. This is it. He says, let's build three shelters. This is perfect. We, this is all we need. These three equal voices. And Peter's excited, just a little confused. <laughs> now, Peter gets a couple of things wrong, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what he gets, but here's something that Peter gets right. And Peter always gets, have you ever heard anybody teach, preach, whatever from, you guys have, from, from uh, the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter always gets rolled under the bus right about now. And they always make fun of Peter for wanting to stay on the mountain. Oh, Peter, he shouldn't want to stay on the mountaintop. You know, we can't stay on the mountaintop, friends. And it sounds so spiritual and so condescending. Oh, Peter, he just wanted to build a shelter and stay on the mountaintop with Jesus. <laughs> Did you notice that no one corrected Peter? Yeah, hey, come on now. No one said, no, Peter, bad idea. There was a correction, but it wasn't, it wasn't to stop looking at Jesus. The correction was, no, no, look only at Jesus. Peter said, this is great. All three of you guys are here. And then a cloud comes. 
The same cloud that, that, that was with them, that the same cloud that was with them in the, as they journeyed through, through the wilderness, the same cloud that filled the, the tabernacle, the same cloud that filled the temple, the cloud comes, the Shekinah comes, and a voice comes from the cloud that says, well, actually, this is my beloved son whom I love. And then the voice says what? Listen to him. Listen to him. So who's on, who's on the mountain there? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. What's significant about that? Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah is the proto-prophet. So Jesus is on the mountain with the law and the prophets. And heaven says, listen to him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, and in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus Christ is the final and perfect voice from heaven. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. For every, no matter how many promises of God they are, they are yes in Jesus Christ. And he walked along with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he opened up the book, and he told them how everything was about him. <laughs> he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is the fulfillment of God's righteousness. He is the final voice from heaven. Listen to him. They fell down in terror and looked up, and there was no one left but Jesus. Nothing to fear. Don't be afraid, he says. Let me tell you, the gospel is good news. Jesus is a savior and a redeemer. He hasn't come to condemn, but to save. Oh, man, this is powerful. And then they go back down the mountain. <laughs> what a life. I'd still be spinning. Shouldn't we eat or something? Jesus says, now don't talk about this. Don't talk about this. Do you know what just happened? He says, no, don't talk about this until the Son of Man raised, until I'm raised from the dead. Now, keep in mind, he just said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And yet, and yet, and yet, they still seem to forget about it later. But yeah. we'll get to that later. But there were three of them. And Deuteronomy says, let, let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's, there's biblical precedent that they, they, there was enough of them to give testimony to this event. Yeah, you could, you could say, well, why didn't Jesus go up there just by himself? Because what happened there was significant enough it needed to be told. Amen. We need to know who Jesus is, Amen. his glory and his supremacy. That he's, it's like Moses and Sinai, but not like Moses and Sinai. <laughs> so they come down the hill. I'm chuckling because I haven't looked at my notes for about a half an hour. I have no idea where they are. <laughs> Here we go. Two pages later, let's pick it up in my notes. Jesus confronts a mountain, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approaches Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. As soon as Jesus comes down from the mountain, there is a scene that awaits him. This time it's a father. A father comes to him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures. He's, it's not a, this is not a specific diagnosis of, 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 a, of, a, of a medical activity. That's, it literally is that from time to time, without explanation, he, 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 he erupts in tremendously agitated behavior. That's what this, the, it, it, the word probably, we would use the word the lunatic, literally what, like whatever happens with the moon. It's just, it's a, it's a, it, was a, it was not a specific diagnosis that the father was bringing. 
It's oftentimes a voice called an epileptic. That's not the case here. He has his, his unexplained seizures, and he suffers from them. And, one of the, and some of the consequences of him living in this agitation is he sometimes falls into the fire or into the water. Whatever's happening to him is trying to kill him. And whatever is happening to him leads him to agitated extremes. Now, this is real, but the, but, but, but the potential symbolism is just too much, for us not, too much for us to ignore. We can feel with this father. We can feel with his concern. We can feel his pain and his, his concern, his compassion for his son who is suffering and under, un, seems to be uh, 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 something is wrong where, where he's living, where he gets agitated and he lives from one extreme to another and both of these extremes are destructive. We can say with him, Lord, have mercy on our son. All of us, many of us have a situation where we say, Lord, we have a person in our life who is suffering and we need his deliverance. We need his help. We could, also, we could also identify it with it in a more generic or general way. We might say, Lord, have mercy on our sons, on a whole generation that is agitated and convulsed and, all, and is swinging without a definition from one extreme to the other, from, from, from depression to, to wild behavior. But no matter what it does, they seem to be destroying themselves. We could say, Lord, have mercy on the cities in America. Agitated, fire, water, destruction. We can feel the need for mercy. And then verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. I don't like that verse. To me, that's the worst verse ever. The tormented and oppressed come and find no help. I brought, them, I brought them to your disciples, and they couldn't help him. Now, in Matthew's narrative, we aren't told what happened. We aren't told why or how or what happened. They just they couldn't or didn't help. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe the father came to these nine at the bottom of the mountain, and these nine said, you know what? We don't really do that here. That kind of ministry isn't part of our mission statement. It's not really our culture here. We, 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 if we were to engage in that kind of ministry, we're concerned it might upset visitors. Or maybe they said, actually, doctrinally, God stopped doing those things. He only did that for a little while, and then he stopped because he's moody like that. (laughs) Or maybe they said, actually, we believe that God is just here here to help you cope and accept what's wrong. Hmm. Or perhaps you should blame someone else for this. Or they may have been too intimidated or afraid to try. Or they may have tried and failed. All we know is that the man found no help. And then Jesus' response is, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? Now, at, at, at first blush, this is confusing or frustrating or something's wrong here. But if we'll listen, this is why important, if we listen to the whole narrative, 
there is something larger happening, something more, there, there's, a, there's a deeper challenge and more good news than at first blush. Because they come down from the mountain to the crowd below, and there's commotion, and then Jesus is frustrated. Don't forget that Matthew is shadowing Moses' ascent and descent from the mountain. And when Moses, this is important, when Moses came down from the mountain, there also was commotion. And he was frustrated. At what? Was he frustrated because the people of Israel were trying really hard but were being unsuccessful? No, they, he was frustrated because they had actually abandoned. He didn't come down and was, he wasn't frustrated at their failure. He was frustrated that they had forfeited. They had changed. They had exchanged the God who delivered them for a calf. They had abandoned faith. When Jesus says, you perverse and unbelieving generation, he's quoting Moses. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32.20, Moses actually says, you are a perverse generation without faith. He's quote, and, and the readers would have known, hey, he's, he's quoting Moses. There's, there was something, friends, there was something more going on at the bottom of that hill than just, quote, unquote, the best intentions. This is why it, it remains a challenge, but it's not nearly as condemnatory as folks have made it. Jesus comes down the mountain, and like Moses, Jesus is mad. Can you just deal with the fact Jesus is mad? And he, and he quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Moses. He lays into, you think, who was he mad at, the dad or the boy or the disciples or the... I don't think he was talking to the dad so much, but he definitely was upset. With, with the, he uses generation. He's speaking broadly. He's usually speaking quite broadly there. He is, the, the point is, Jesus is not pleased with any of this. He's not pleased with the suffering. He's not pleased with the blame, and he's not pleased with the inability to help. So he says, bring the boy to me. We got to go there first. Somebody say that with me. Bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. Hey, here's good news. When we don't have answers, we must not go anywhere else. We, we, we just come back to Jesus. There are times in my life that I have not had answers. I still don't have answers today, but I'm going nowhere else but to Jesus. I'm going to keep coming right back to Jesus. I'm going to keep coming right back. Bring the boy to me, fine. I'm going to keep trusting in him. I may not understand, but I know who Jesus is, and I trust him. I'm going nowhere else. People may fail us. Circumstances may frustrate us, but we can call on the name of Jesus. And here's more good news. Whatever the reason, here's right there. Whatever the reason were, was here it, uh, uh, for that the disciples couldn't help, it wasn't because Jesus wasn't willing. He says, he's frustrated and he says, bring him to me. Let's be clear. When we pray, your will be done, we are praying, Lord, let it be as if it were Jesus doing it. This is our prayer. Now, a couple more things. Jesus then, 
we already, we, I got excited and already talked about this. So he says, bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon. It comes out of the boy, and the boy was healed. Again, other gospel writers give us more information. They say there's a conversation. We hear the father talking. Matthew, once again, has almost no interest in all the auxiliary details. He just wants us to know one thing. What's that? Jesus happened. Jesus happened. Jesus, he says here, he said, we've got a tormented and suffering boy who's now healed and whole, and in the middle of it, Jesus happened. But what Matthew does tell us is at least two things. He tells us that the first thing that Jesus does is he says, Jesus rebuked the demon. Hey, 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 friends. Who mentioned a demon yet? Nobody. This is the first time in the story that we even hear that there was one. All we've heard so far is that he has seizures, he's suffering, hot, cold, and, and he needs healing. Nobody can help. Look, it may have been that the, <clears throat> the disciples didn't know there was one. I mean, there's a lot of things. But what, he said, what Jesus does first is confronts evil. Friends, there will not be peace, there will not be wholeness until evil is confronted. He confronts evil, he tells it it has to go, that it has no ground and no right to be there. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, must embrace the truth that evil is illegal. That the devil is an intruder. He is an outlaw. Evil must be driven out and away if there's going to be peace, if there's going to be healing. And then the boy was healed. So Jesus rebukes evil. He ministers healing. Jesus happened. Awesome. I would love to hear all the music and see the rest of it, but Matthew's going to keep, keep, he keeps moving the story along quickly. Now the disciples come to Jesus privately and they say, hey, 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 why couldn't we drive it out? Great question. Listen to the implications of that question. They say, why couldn't we drive it out? What is that? They, in that moment, accepted responsibility. They did. They didn't say, why didn't, why was wrong with the dad or what was wrong with the boy or what was wrong with you, Jesus. They didn't blame anybody else. They simply recognized that whatever happened, it wasn't that the fault didn't rely with the, the fickleness of Jesus or the faithlessness of the Father. Come on. They didn't blame other people. They said, Lord, what, what, what was wrong? What, what did we do? What's, what's the deal? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith, I truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. It will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. They say, Lord, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. Before we go too much further, it's important that we just say this, even if it just pokes us a little bit. We need to be reminded this is, this is the reason, one of the reasons why the Bible's been around a long time is because it's real and it's tough. Yeah. It's good. But we need to understand that church unbelief, and we'll talk about more about it in a minute, but unbelief has consequences. It apparently frustrates Jesus, and it can leave people suffering. Now, here's the question. What did Jesus mean because of your unbelief? Most of the time, this passage is somewhat weaponized. And it's, and it's made to sound like, well, you didn't try hard enough. I don't read that. I, that's, I'll just tell you, that's not, there's just no way. There's exegetically, we cannot, we cannot get from, 
you, you, we not get, you can't get from this story to the phrase, you didn't try hard enough. There's, there's, there's something else going on. Because of your unbelief. Jesus' response to them is, is harsh. Like Moses was to the people of Israel below the, the, on the bottom of the, the, the mountain. Do you remember when Peter got out of the boat and he was the only one of the 12 that got out of the boat? And he's walking on the water. As far as we know, the only other human being in flesh and blood to actually walk on water other than the Lord Jesus. To him, no big deal. But other than, that, other than Jesus, Peter's the only one who, that we know of, that I know of, who's walked on water. I think we can give Peter a thumbs up for that, right? Yeah. Good job, Peter. Okay. So Peter's walking on the water, and then he takes, and he stops, and he begins to notice the wind and the waves, and he, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he gets nervous, and fear comes on him, and he begins to sink. And then what does Jesus do? He walks over and just yells at Peter, doesn't he? He yells at Peter and said, why didn't you try harder? You unbelieving and perverse Peter. No. He grabs Peter's hand and pulls him out. Now he does say, oh, you can almost hear Jesus. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When, when his disciples fail taking a risk, He's there. He's present with them. He's comforting them. He saves them. He schools them. He encourages them. But he doesn't leave Peter drowning and walk away like, bro, you're on your own. Should have tried harder. <laughs> so this kind of a thing, because it, the, we, the, for us to read Jesus consistently, there's got to be, there had to have been more happening on the bottom of that mountain. And if we remember that Matthew is intentionally paralleling with the ascent and the descent of Moses, then we remember that when Moses came down the mountain, he found a problem, but he, it wasn't the problem that he found wasn't the result of failed effort. It was a result of total forfeiture. The people below had forgotten God and abandoned all confidence in him. Is it possible that this is the reason for such a harsh rebuke from Jesus? Did these nine down below, we don't know how long Jesus and Peter, James, and John, and Dab were up on the hill. They it took them a while because they had to keep waiting for death, right? <laughs> but is it possible that those who remained at the foot of the mountain, did, did they give up in the absence of the physical presence of Jesus? In the, in the absence of the, quote, varsity squad, what happened to their confidence, their loyalty, their, their worldview? Did they forget all that they had seen and done before? Now, before we start crossing our arms and nodding our head and say, yep, serves them right. Remember, we can still find ourselves here. Did they assume that, it was, that, that what, what needed to be done was only possible in the, with the physical presence of Jesus? Or had they so adjusted their religion to accommodate their circumstance that they no longer clinged to who Jesus said he was? I don't know. But Jesus says the next thing is, is, I think, reinforces that. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, 
two things. Number one, what's smaller than a mustard seed? Nothing. Which means what? They didn't bring nothing. Pardon the bad grammar. They brought nothing. I, I believe the rebuke is not a failed effort, but total faithlessness. Guys, if you would have had faith just this much, the point is they brought faith the, the shape of a bagel. <laughs> Welcome. But if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, now, friends, we've already heard about the mustard seed, haven't we? We've already heard a parable about the mustard seed. The mustard seed is something that is infinite, that is so small in, that when it starts in comparison to what happens after it's sown, it grows exponentially. There's an exponential difference between its beginning and its fulfillment, between how it's how it sows and how it grows. There's a massive difference between, between the state that it's in when it is sows and when it grows. And he says, if you'll have faith like a mustard seed, if, you'll, you, if you, you've got to sow your faith to grow it, your faith will do no good keeping it in your pocket like a mustard seed in my pocket. Hey, watch out. I got a mustard seed. Powerful. It'll do you no good. It'll sit in your pocket. Go in the laundry. Nothing. But if you take it and do something with it, he said, boys, if you'll just take your faith and do anything with it, if you'll do anything with it, then your faith will grow. And that, that kind of faith, just faith working. Guys, if you just set faith to work, you can speak to mountains and they'll move. And he says, boys, if you'll just use your faith, you don't understand. Faith in the name of Jesus and nothing will be impossible for you. But you've got to sow it to grow it. You gotta do something with it. You gotta you gotta take the first step of obedience. It doesn't have to be massive. You just it can be a mustard seed movement. But you'll set something in motion that will move mountains. Before I let you go, I gotta tell you something. The academy of which I am a part. The broader academic theological academy for the most part you'll see this goes out of its way to make sure that believers don't take that verse seriously here's a quote we must recognize the limitations of this promise from a, yeah that's from a, a renowned evangelical scholar <laughs> we must recognize the limitations of this promise there is a great effort to make sure that the disciples of Jesus hear when they read this, they hear Jesus' words this way. If you have faith, you can do some reasonable things. There's a considerable effort to make sure the church doesn't get carried away thinking that we can do the impossible. There's a considerable effort to protect people from having too much faith. You know, I don't think the problem with the church is that she has too much faith. It wasn't the problem then, and I don't think it's a problem now. I don't think it's a problem. You know, if you ever start exercising so much faith that it could make Jesus nervous, first of all, I'm going to hang out with you. And secondly, I think Jesus could handle it. You know what phrase I've never seen in the Bible? Too much faith. 
have you ever seen too much faith, excessive faith? Stop having, Jesus Christ never talks anyone down from excessive faith. Ever. As a matter of fact, when people come to him with audacious faith, he stops, turns around and says, look, 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 look. Roman centurion says, no, no, you don't have to come to my house. Just talk. Jesus says, listen to that. Syrophoenician woman says, yeah, but at least the dogs get the bread. He says, oh, nicely played. Faith. Hey, boys, listen to her. The two times that he commends great faith, Gentiles. <laughs> People with great faith make everybody else nervous but Jesus. I've only seen Jesus delighted with and amazed at audacious faith. That's the kind of faith that this world needs. That's the kind of faith that will move mountains. That's the kind of faith that Jesus expects. Jesus expects the impossible. Let's stand. Let me pray for you. Is anybody here, as you're standing, is there anybody here that would just acknowledge that you have a mountain that could use relocation? (laughs) 11 o'clock is always the loudest. Yeah! (laughs) Like David drinking Morton coffee in the back. Hey! Uh, (laughs) Is there anybody here that has a mountain that needs relocation? All right, lean into this for a moment. Bow your heads with me. I want you to think about that mountain just for a minute. But now, here's the next thing I want you to, I want to ask you to do today. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what is, what is the mustard seed movement for you today? I know that you can look at the size of that mountain, but don't worry about the size of that mountain. Just turn and think, what is the mustard seed movement that I need to do today? Lord, what is what seed of faith can I plant to set something in motion? I want you to have the courage just to believe the Holy Spirit wants to help you. To say, Lord, what is that one mustard seed? It may not even make a lot of sense. It may seem, it may seem totally unrelated, but if you you can you just know, you know it's the voice of the Spirit, there's peace on it, and you know that it'll take a little bit of courage to do it. There it is, that's faith. There's peace, and it requires a little bit of courage, and you know it's going to be the right thing to do. There it is. That's the mustard seed. Do that. Oh, yeah, I want you to believe that Jesus wants you to do the impossible. I want you to feel, feel robust and confident about faith. But what more than anything, what's absolutely necessary is that you do something. Don't just... Don't just hold that seed in your hand thinking, yeah, this is a great seed. No, you must do something today. What is the mustard seed movement that you will sow to confront that mountain in your life? If you will have faith as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. So I ask you in closing today, is there anybody in this room that is ready 
for Mission Impossible. Yeah? I bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. Leave from this house. Go and practice. Go and do something with your mustard seed. Go do the impossible. Amen.